This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. And I come from you from the land of the Munthi Lenape people, also known as Orange County, New York. Um, And I am one of the co-editors of our book, uh, Black Lives Matter at School, an uprising for racial justice that you just heard, educational justice um, that you just saw about in the video. And my co-editors here and a couple a contributor, um, two contributors and some other folks are also here to talk about today's topic. So I wanted to give you an overview of how we came up with today's talk. Um, A friend of mine named Bria Miles, uh, we got together in a class we took this summer and um, reached out about the book, was very excited about it, and shared with me about the work that she's doing with a group called the San Jose Unified Equity Coalition. And um, they have been doing a lot of work um, to get police out of schools in San Jose, Unified School District, um, and she was really excited about maybe kind of furthering that work. And I knew that um, Cecily Mayart-Cruz, one of our um, guests today, had wrote about um, her work as well for racial justice um, in in Los Angeles. I know Jesse Hagopian, my co-editor, also is doing this work in Seattle. Um, Nathaniel Janine, also doing this work in Minneapolis. Um, so we brought everyone together. And so I'm really excited that we were able to put together this talk um, sponsored by um, San Jose Un- um, Unified Equity Coalition, Un- um, United Teachers of Los Angeles. Black Lives Matter at School, and Haymarket Books. Um, So we're going to start with a video from one of the San Jose Unified Equity Coalition members, Derek Sanders, who really, Derek Sanderlin, who's going to frame what happened in San San Jose and what they're working for in that coalition. Um, And then we're going to turn it over to Cecily Mayart-Cruz, who's the president of the United Teachers of Los Angeles Union, um, and talking about that work that she began um, around the time of the death of Michael Brown and how pushing her union to do anti-racist work and to think about racial justice um, and police-free schools. Um, Then we're going to hear from Nathaniel Janine and Jesse Hagopian, who are featured in the book in an interview um, about his work as a high school student in Minneapolis, um, pushing to get police out of schools after the horrific murder of George Floyd. Um, Jesse's going to talk to you about the work in Seattle and how the Seattle Educators Association are also pushing for police-free schools. And then we're coming back to San Jose um, with Tanya Jaco, who's going to talk a little bit more about the San Jose Unified um, Equity Coalition and the work that they're doing. Um, After everyone's spoken for a minute, I have some questions that will frame our discussion, and then we will also be taking questions from the audience. So if you have those, go ahead and drop them in the chat, and someone will make sure that those come to me as well, too. So we're going to go ahead and start with the video from Derek Sanderlin for you to watch um, to really frame how um, this work is happening in San Jose. Derek, and I'm with San Jose Unified Equity Coalition, or SJUEC. SJUEC is a grassroots coalition of parents, students, educators, and community members who are committed to racial equity, to the safety of our schools, and to the health of our community. Back in July of 2020, 
a group of teachers and parents drafted and authored the Derek Sanderlin resolution to defund the police. And it was lovingly named uh, after me because on May 29th, uh, I was shot by San Jose police officers um, with a rubber bullet. And two years prior, I had been joining alongside and coordinating with community members to lead an inherent bias training with the San Jose Police Academy. And yet this did not deter uh, certain police officers um, from inciting violence on me and on many other members of our community out in the city of San Jose. Uh, And this is indicative of the urgency of the resolution, um, which calls for the defunding and removal of school resource officers from San Jose Unified School District campuses and a replacement, uh, really a reimagination of public safety across all of our campuses for our students, for our teachers, and for our parents. Uh, We want to replace officers with more counselors. Uh, We want to ensure that there are proper uh, conflict resolution um, programs, uh, restorative justice programs, and uh, of course, ethnic studies curriculums that are more reflective of our whole community here in San Jose. Back in August uh, of 2020, we demanded that SJUSD hold a study session um, for our resolution. And we had initially convinced members of the board uh, to put it up for discussion um, back in August. And we also saw uh, San Jose Teachers Association pass the resolution unanimously on July 14th. um, And we were able to hold multiple community forums, including back in November, where each board member was present for the discussion of our resolution and the discussion of police-free schools. Um, We were also able to receive support from uh, California Assembly Member Ash Kala, my man, and uh, and collected over 1,900 signatures to our petition to remove SROs from the district campuses. Each board member has acknowledged the value of this resolution, and yet it hasn't made the agenda for approval. And despite community calls for the district board not to pass a memorandum of understanding with SJPD, which included um, language about campus officers, the five board members unanimously approved the MOU on December 10th. And so in response to uh, their, uh, in response to their lack of urgency within the board. Uh, We organized a car protest uh, and over 150 community members um, to write emails um, and uh, come out for a car caravan, a demonstration outside of the district building. We also called for uh, community members to write emails um, and comment for teacher's choice uh, to work from home. We know that this fight is not over, and even when the resolution is passed, we know that uh, the fight fight must continue uh, to keep our kids safe. And so we will be continuing to work alongside teachers, parents, and students alike uh, in order to get this done and in order to reimagine uh, safety for our students um, for years to come. And we implore you to join us.
There we go. So hopefully you now have an understanding of what's happening in San Jose and why it's really important that we address this. And so our focus is on California, of course, looking at San Jose and and Los Angeles, but then we're also spreading, right? Because this movement is spreading. Um, As Jesse likes to say, the uprising for racial justice is our way of collecting on Goyer, Lass, and Billings education debt, right? And part of that is making our schools safe. um, And part of that is getting rid of police and fighting for racial justice. So I want to start right now Cecily Myart Cruz, who's a teacher activist and the United Teachers Los Angeles president. Um, she is an amazing activist and scholar and mother and friend. And I'm so excited that um, she co- contributed a chapter to the book and is here to talk to you about the work in Los Angeles and how they're pushing the unions to do this work. Well, I want to say thank you, Dr. Jones, and being on this panel is giving me life, um, especially today. Um, I have to always go back to where we began, right? Where where we began here at UTLA and really say it was Michael Brown's murder that was a catalyst for us to actually begin the work of bringing racial justice into our union. And so on August 9th, 2014, I always have to remember that date to say it was a marker for change. And um, we began to do this work within UTLA and we were kind of saying, what can we do? to actually address police brutality, uh, the criminalization of our students and pairing that with how do we begin to bring in, usher in something different for our babies. And so we said, let's bring together a racial justice task force. But in that task force, that it just couldn't be voices of members. It must be voices of students as well as voices of community. So we brought on Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. We brought on Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute. Uh, Students deserve, those are my babies, Um, and members of our board of directors in UTLA and rank and file members. And we started creating forums uh, within our union to actually hear from parents and students and community to actually say what is happening in our schools and how do we shift that with our with our educators? How do we do that? And so we began to move through the city Um, uh, 725 square miles in LAUSD to have different forums to bring parents and students. And we did it with purpose, not having educators speak, because that sometimes is the fallback, actually having student voices lead and parents lead in that work and have them bring up the issues and concerns of the day, and as educators listen to what was going on, and then leave us with action steps. What can we do to move the the conversation forward? And with that, 
Um, we started to do that work. We ended at Dorsey High School. Um, and with the Dorsey High School Forum, we were at 1,500 folks there and had to come in through a barricade of police that were blockading this. And we had such a beautiful moment in there with students giving their perspective, saying no more criminalization of our youth. And as we came out of that forum, standing together, saying the Asada chant, such a beautiful moment of black love and black resistance and saying our union has to be involved. And then how does that look just from our local? How does it look on the national level? And bringing a motion to really talk about being an anti-racist union and what that looks like locally, what that looks like statewide, and what that looks like nationally. And I am proud of that work. But is that work constant or does that work change? And the focus point that I want to leave here today with is the fact that we have to affirm our babies. We have to affirm their experiences and perspectives. And then we must include the community at the table. And then we move this in a very powerful way to say we must be there to disrupt the absolute systems that oppress folks. We must do that because Black Lives Matter, period. Thank you so much, Cecily, for those powerful words and for really seeing how, you know, it's been ongoing and we know, you know, it didn't just begin when, you know, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi and, um, oh, now I'm blanking on it. Don't let me blank on the third name. You, you said Opal. Opal, Patrice, Patrice. and... And Alicia Garza. Alicia Garza, thank you. You know, it didn't just happen when they said Black Lives Matter after Trayvon Martin. This has been an ongoing struggle, right? But it got some fire going. It got the movement going, right? And so you guys were, you know, we hear in all these stories and when Jesse tells the origins of what happened in Seattle, you know, they were reeling from the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, right? And then the murder of Charlene Lyles, right? And the murder of George Floyd. And it just keeps reinforcing that this work is ongoing, right? And we, and we, we know that. And so it's so important um, to just keep centering that struggle and that's ongoing, but then also think about that our, we're pushing for black joy, right? Through all of the struggle that we're, that we're continuing to do. So thank you. All right, up next we have Nathaniel Janine, who's a rising senior at Washburn High School in South Minneapolis. I am so super impressed. I thought I was like a do-gooder in high school. Nah, man, listen to this. He serves as a student representative to the Minneapolis Board of Education and the at-large member on the Citywide Youth Leadership Council. He also works with Thrive Ed, a nonprofit working to build an educational paradigm shaped by innovation and joy for learners and educators. In our turn, an advocacy organization fighting to mobilize young people in the fight for educational justice. Forget a do-gooder. This boy is woke. He's doing the work and putting it in. And I am super excited um, that Jesse interviewed him and, and, and got his story in the book. And so Jesse's going to engage in a conversation with Nathaniel about what happened in, in Minneapolis that really drove him. Thanks so much, Denisha. 
Uh, welcome, Nathaniel. It's really great to be reunited with you here. Um, I hope you love the book, by the way. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was awesome. When it showed up in the mail, it was probably like the highlight of the year. I mean, it's been a very short year, but it was <laughs> right on. Yes. And your your words are what helped to make this book uh, so powerful. And really the words of all the students in the book are my favorite part. And your story really uh, impacted me when I was talking to you about your struggle. And I hope that we can share this with everyone out there, because I know that when you learned about George Floyd's death, it hit you really hard. And I hope you can talk about your experience being in Minneapolis, living so close to this horrific murder. Can you talk about that and, and what happened? Yeah. So, um, Denisha just mentioned, I worked for, well, I still work for, um, I work for a small profit nonprofit called Thrive Ed and the morning of May 26th. Um, I actually, like I usually do, I had a zoom call and we were doing a meeting and we were working on, um, it was either, I think it was either restorative justice practices or we were talking about, um, we were talking about something else. Um, but we had a meeting and me being me, um, I'm distracted on my phone looking at Twitter and, uh, I'm going through Twitter and, um, I come across the video, um, that has been played across the world. Um, you know, millions and millions of times. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't know or recognize. Um, the people who were recording that night, they were high schoolers. They're, they're the same age as me. They go to my neighboring high school where most of my friends go. Um, so those are kids watching recording that day. Um, and I watched it and I'll be honest, I was put in absolute shock. Um, I, first thing I did is like, I was in immediate denial. And the first thing I did was like, there's no way this happened so close to home. Like 38th in Chicago, that is now George Floyd Memorial. Um, it is literally where I used to catch my bus transfer um, on Saturdays. Cause I also spend my Saturdays going to school for a six day of the week. And, um, I was put in shock for about 30 minutes and, um, the people who were advising the meeting, I could immediately tell that like something's up with Nathaniel. This doesn't look right. And, um, I actually just ended up leaving the meeting early. And I remember the first thing that I did was I went down to 38th in Chicago. And at the time there were about, maybe 10 to 20 people down there. And it's just been life changing seeing this group of 10 to 20 grow into thousands, move nationwide to international level. And, um, it, it really has, um, made me look at the world with a different perspective. And I will admit those two weeks were probably the hardest two weeks of my life. I'm following, you know, the incident, and I, I, it's hard to put into words. Um, yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that pain and trauma with us. I know it's hard to recount that moment. Um, and, and so I thank you for that. And I know that it was really hard going back to school right after you had to see that horrific image, um, happen in your neighborhood. Can you talk about your experience trying to reintegrate into school? Yeah. So, um, 
late May, early June is also the end of the year for uh, Minneapolis public school. So we were wrapping up the year. It was the final two weeks of the year. And I remember um, for at least um, two or three days, I was completely zoned out from school. I couldn't focus. I wasn't doing any work. And like, when I say that, like I couldn't like focus for more than a couple of minutes. And um, we have this kind of stereotype with our teachers that a lot of them are white. They live in the suburbs and they went to the U of M, the University of Minnesota. And I remember I didn't turn in an assignment and I had my um, had a teacher uh, in an accelerated course. Um, that's actually a zero hour course. So um, the course is all white. I was the only black student in the course, even though our school is about 40 to 50 percent students of color. And he sent me a message because I didn't turn in an assignment. He said, hey, Nathaniel, are you an IB diploma candidate? If so, um, there is no excuse to have this assignment missing. I understand if you don't understand what's going on, um, but you can't have this missing right now. Wow. That's exactly why we're building the Black Lives Matter at school movement, because we we can't have that. We need educators who are nurturing and supporting our youth through traumatic events, not not trying to punish and shame. I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I'm glad that uh, you're part of this struggle to change the schools. And I wonder if you could talk about how all that experience helped to lead you to be part of an incredible uprising of youth that drove the police out of the Minneapolis public schools? Yeah. Um, I think when it comes to police free schools in Minneapolis, I always have to recognize that it did not start in May of this year. Um, there have been kids organizing on this for years. Um, there's a group in South Minneapolis called YPAC. It's the Youth um, Young People's Action Coalition. They've been working on this since 2017. And this is something that comes up every three years. And it's been a debate since the 80s. Um, but what happened with me is um, it was a turning point um, for a lot of people where it was no longer a question of like, do we keep our kids like, oh, we're not going to keep our kids safe if we don't have cops in schools. It is literally it was a question about our morals as a school district. It is can we willingly invest into an institution that is literally traumatizing our students? Um, like, are we willing to align ourselves? with a police department that is literally being investigated for widespread civil rights abuses. It's what kind of president are we setting up for our students? Um, so I, I decided to work with a friend. Um, she goes to South and we're like, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And um, we, we, we decided like, we're going to do it nice and simple. We're going to show that we can create a framework to keep our students safe without continuing down this path. And that's exactly what we did. Um, we, we gathered the voices of about between, I think it's between 16 to 2000 voices, 1600 to 2000 voices um, in a matter of a weekend. And at the time, when I say like, this was a collective, um, uh, we were doing like, this was everyone coming together. This was the Minneapolis teachers union. Um, this was members of the state legislature. Um, this was community activists. This was reclaim the block. This was students coming together. This was our turn coming together. Um, everyone coming together to send this clear message um, that Minneapolis police were no longer welcome in our schools. And we were able to take that um, and bring it to the Board of Education. 
And here's the thing about the student representative. I don't get a vote. Um, and that's something that we've been working on and that we've been um, talking about for a while. Um, but what I can do is share the perspective of students. And in the end, um, it's not, it's not going to be the, you know, the directors up there or the superintendent um, who have to walk in the halls of the schools and deal with these encounters. It's the students. Um, so when making that decision, I just wanted to make sure that students were in the very forefront and were able to take that and are able to use um, excerpts from, um, from what we found. We're able to show that, you know, there are alternatives. We're just not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not looking in the right places right now. Yes. What an incredible example of collective struggle. And it's just incredible to see how what you all were able to kick off actually spread across the country, right? And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I wanted to see if you had any last uh, reflections on your experience and and where you all are going now with this. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the great things or it's something that so basically the week after I remember um, I had um, I think it was a student rep from San Jose actually reach out and I actually sent her the resolution and I sent her a lot of her findings and she was I think it was yeah I think so and she was able to use that and I think um, there was a student group from Los Angeles that reached out too and just watching this movement expand nationwide um, it's just been phenomenal. Um, another thing is the work is just getting started. Um, most of the summer, um, I actually partnered with um, Dr. Ross Raju, the Minneapolis NAACP, and um, a couple, um, I don't know how to say it. Um, it's this its this Nobel laureate. Um, oh, hi, my mom is walking in now. We're going to ignore her. Um, we were able to work with this group, and we were able to bring together students from across the district um, to put together a short-term long-term plan to look into replacements to our school resource officer program. And we actually began um, doing some training um, back in October. And um, we're still working on that five-year process of changing, changing the climate of our schools and the cultures of our district. And, you know, I, I'm still doing that work to this day. And, you know, I, I'm probably going to keep doing it until after I graduate. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll be there to get your back, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for all the work you've already done in your life and for sharing these lessons with us today, because it's meant a lot to me personally. Uh, The example of the Minneapolis schools removing harmful police from the schools, you know, spread to St. Paul schools, spread to Denver public schools, Oakland kicked the police out of the schools, Charlottesville kicked the police out. And I'm incredibly proud to say that because of uh, amazing youth organizers in Seattle, like Angelina and Kittist, they kicked the police out of the Seattle public schools as well. Uh, It was a great victory. At first, the school board said, they would remove them for a year while they studied the situation. And the pressure grew and Angelina and Kittist's petition got more and more signatures, some 14,000 signatures in just a couple of days. And the pressure grew and we were able 
to get that to be a permanent removal of the Seattle police. And we're still in the struggle to get those police officers replaced with someone who will actually help our kids like counselors and school psychologists. I mean, I live in a city (laughs) where we have Amazon and Boeing and Starbucks and Microsoft and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, some of the richest people the world has ever known. And we don't have a nurse in every single school, right? I mean, this this is the contradictions that we face in the public schools in this country. And that's why I'm incredibly proud of my union because on June 8th of, the, of uh, 2020, the Seattle Education Association overwhelmingly passed seven resolutions in solidarity with the movement for black lives. And these resolutions included removing police from schools and removing them from the King County Labor Council, saying that police are not part of the labor movement. They never have been part of the labor movement. They've always been on the opposite side of the picket lines and generation after generation busting strikes rather than supporting uh, their fellow workers. And so that was an incredible resolution that we passed in in our union, and then it actually passed in the King County Labor Council, and they were officially removed and are no longer part of the House of Labor. And then I'm proud to say that the Seattle Education Association overwhelmingly passed my resolution to defund the Seattle Police Department by 50% and reinvest that money in education, in healthcare, and in programs to support families. And these bold resolutions were surely spurred by the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, and and too many to count. Uh, but it wasn't only the injustices elsewhere. It's also that Seattle educators have been fighting institutional racism in the school to prison pipeline for some time. You know, Black Lives Matter at school got kicked off as a day of action in Seattle in 2016 when 3000 educators came to school wearing shirts that said Black Lives Matter in response to white supremacists who had threatened an elementary school because they wanted to wear those shirts. So we've been in the struggle, but you know, we didn't have to look to other cities for inspiration to oppose police in our city and in our schools because right here in Seattle, the police killed Charlena Lyles, a pregnant mother of three kids who had to witness her murder in her own apartment when the police showed up, when she called the police looking for help and they showed up and killed her in front of her children's and had to drag the kids over her body. I mean, the the horrific trauma that the police are inflicting on black communities across the country has been visited in, in my city too many times to count. And these are the stories that motivated us, right? I mean, those kids went to Seattle public schools and they're Teachers had to figure out how to pick up the pieces and those school psychologists had to figure out how to help those kids deal with the trauma of losing their mother. And those experiences led us 
to take that bold stand and and also analyzing the police budget you know 400 million dollars over 400 million a year go to funding police uh the biggest part of this the city budget and you can look at examples like seattle police officer ron willis who uh he's a patrol officer in seattle and he made $414,000 last year, it, it, an incredible salary. Uh, and he, there were times when he was working an average of 80 hours per week, quote unquote, to get his overtime. Uh, but he was billing the city for more than 24 hours of overtime in, in a single day. Um, and the city budget of overtime is some $30 million a year. And compare that to the overtime budget for educators. What's the overtime budget for educators, (sighs) right? We get zero overtime for all the extra time after school, meeting with kids and helping them with their homework for all the grading and lesson planning, right? And this tells you a lot about the priorities uh, of our our system. So I, I wanna wrap up by by suggesting we need a serious shift in priorities in our country. You know, just a few blocks from where I teach, they built a $200 million jail for kids. Imagine if they invested that money into lowering class size, into, you know, healthcare centers for our kids, things that actually can provide public safety, right? And as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people and whole people heal people, right? So we want to make our communities whole with massive investments in social services because we know that the wealth inequality and racism are hurting people in our cities and those constitute the biggest threat to public safety. You know, I have 150 homeless kids at the school that I teach at. That is a threat to public safety, right? Uh, And public safety to me means making sure that every kid has a safe place to live. They have health care. They have food. They have trauma counseling and mentorship, not patrolling them, arresting them and abandoning them, but actually nurturing them and uh, is what I believe will create uh, public safety. So uh, I am so thrilled to get to be part of the Black Lives Matter at school movement that is chasing the police out of schools all over the country and replacing them with the services that our youth need. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse. And thank you so much, Nathaniel, for your continued work. I mean, you know, as a young person, there's there's other things you should be doing, right? But you're you're doing this work because you have to, right? Because you care about your your yourselves and your students and your community. And so it's it's just it's just humbling, right, to to see you take that on. And Jesse, to the way you talk about your students and their needs, right? And it is and I've seen it in the chat a little bit. It is a culture shift. We are asking people to really change the narrative about how we go about educating black children because once we 
Once we fix the education, we improve the education and we humanize the education of black children, we we make education better for everyone. Right. We know that. Right. And so it's so important that people understand we can't keep doing the same thing we've always been doing. Um, so now I want to come back to San Jose. And so I'm really excited that we have Tanya Jaco, a sixth grade ELA social studies woo woo teacher. I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a uh, come lately social studies person. I'm officially becoming a social studies person, although my heart is in early childhood. Um, who's also, Tanya is also on the board of directors of the National Education Association, secretary for the NEA Black Caucus, um, and just all around doing all this work with the California Teachers Association. And she's working on her doctorate. And if you need an outside uh, person to be on your committee, let me know, because I don't have doctoral programs at my school. And I, you know, I got nothing better to do. I'd love to read dissertation and give feedback. No, seriously, I would love um, to see your work where you're examining ethnic studies and looking at um, implementation in teacher ed programs. And so I think that's really dope and really needed. So Tanya, please let us know, um, you know, tie the thread into everything you heard and, and what you guys are doing in San Jose. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me and allowing me to be, uh, share this space with you all. The, I mean, you all are just powerhouse, some humble, but powerful activists and, and, and educators in the community. And I want to just highlight Nathaniel really quickly because I'm a teacher, you know, we're teachers. And, you know, it just makes my heart so proud to see you representing not just yourself, but the youth in your community and, you know, all the organizations that you're working with. Like, it, you know, I'll start crying. Uh, my eyes, I, I tend to, my eyes tend to sweat a lot when I started talking about students um, and their work. So I just want to say how much we appreciate you. And you are the example right now of why we all do what we do. Right. So I want to bring it all the way back. Our students are why we do what we do. Right. Our families and our communities. That's why we do what we do. Um, and you you mentioned how George Floyd and how that impacted you. And, it, you know, it, it hit us all, um, you know, seeing that it, it broke something in me that I didn't think could be broke. Um, and just to kind of frame it a little bit, you know, at that moment, I just I didn't know what to do. But I just said, you know, I reached out to, you know, my admin at my school, school board members, my local uh, leaders in, in my local union and said, I need y'all to pull up. <laughs> I need you to make a statement and say Black Lives Matter. I need us to come out and show our support. Like, do not be silent on this. Do not all lives matter this moment. Enough is enough. It's time to move. Right. Um, and overwhelmingly. Right. Everyone supported and said, yes, Black Lives Matter. We saw this wave, not just, you know, within San Jose, um, but really across the nation, across the globe. Uh, we saw this move and everybody wanted to support and say that Black Lives Matter. Um, San Jose Unified actually passed a resolution quickly thereafter, affirming that Black Lives Matter and affirming and supporting um, the movement and and committing to racial and social justice within our district, uh, supporting things like the principles uh, of BLM, but also ethnic studies and, you know, to this eradication of institutionalized racism. Right. That's really powerful that they did that. Right. Um, and again, everyone said they got the shirts, they put the posts on on social media. Right. And now we're seeing 
what that work actually looks like. Um, and so we already, this, all of this was kind of happening around the same time. So we had community members already kind of coming together and talking about the removal of SROs from our campuses and what that looked like. Um, as other things came up, the, the, the group of folks who were meeting decided to uh, formalize the group into an equity coalition because we understand the ongoing need of equity work within our community. So we don't want it to just start and stop with the removal of SROs, but we recognize that this is an ongoing process, that this is a long journey. So we have teachers, students, uh, parents, retired teachers, uh, community activists that are coming together to try to do this work. Uh, and what happened was, is from that, we had a group of educators that reached out to Derek Sanderlin, um, who you saw earlier, um, and write a resolution that essentially you know, lays out just police brutality and its impact. Uh, but in a nutshell, it's calling for the removal of SROs from campuses, um, but also replacing that and reallocating funds towards the community supports that we need. So saying that we want counselors, we want school psychologists, we want um, restorative justice practitioners, right? We want mental and behavioral support, uh, health professionals and, and these types of supports. But then also what's really key with the Derek Sanderlin resolution is that it calls for the community to come together to make these decisions, that it's a community-driven process, right, that you have teachers, students, you have, you know, board members, um, you have union members, community partners that really detail and come up with a, a safety plan for the district, right, that says how we want safety to look in our community. Um, and as Derek mentioned, you know, many of our board members um, are, are all in agreement that this is a good thing. Um, but our board members are also responsible for responding to all of our constituent groups. And here's where we ran into some trouble. Here's where I think, uh, you know, if we can kind of dive deeper into the conversation, I'm going to put it back uh, to you. Uh, um, but we had every single principal in our district. So remember, when, when we passed the Black Lives Matter resolution, that almost went, you know, it was unanimous. And I say unanimous, not just in the vote count, but just in the comments at our board meet, at our school board meeting, there wasn't any opposition. You know, there wasn't anyone who stood up and said, no, we don't think you should do this. Uh, but as soon as we said we wanted to remove SROs from campuses, we wanted to replace them with counselors, then we had a flood of folks in opposition. Um, and one in particular, one um, group in particular is all of the principals on every single campus, except for my campus, except for my principal, shout out to Hoover Middle School, um, signed a letter that said, basically said we need and want SROs on campuses. And we know that the principals are the ones who are responsible for developing and implementing a school safety plan, right? So that carries a lot of weight. Um, and so while we don't have SROs on campus this year, which is a great thing, we also don't have students on campus right now either. Um, this is still an issue that needs to be addressed because eventually students are going to come back on campus. And it is imperative that we as a community and as a district, uh, follow through with what we said when we said we were going to eradicate institutionalized racism in our district. 
right? And that comes up when folks don't really know or understand what that looks like, right? They think that, you know, racism just shows up like, like the insurrection on January 6th, right? Or they think it shows up because people are wearing white hoods and saying that they're members of the KKK, right? Not understanding what it looks like in our policies and in our practices and how we are um, policing our students and how we are disciplining our students. And instead of saying we want to create a healthy community and taking a holistic approach and supporting them, not just physically um, and academically, but also mentally, socially, and emotionally, right? Um, And all of those things. And so right now our work continues, right? Our fight continues uh, as to how do we now, right, go back in and start educating our community to say, hey, all y'all said Black Lives Matter, right? All of y'all said that we want to be anti-racist. All of y'all said that we support in, you know, being inclusive and that we want to be safe and that we want to eradicate racism. Now we need you to pull up and actually do the work. It can't just be us as Black activists and Black teachers and Black educators and Black students leading this work or standing by ourselves, right? We need all of you to actually show up to disrupt, to get in the way, to call on your principal. Uh, And I'm going to talk to my colleagues, you know, for you to engage your students, engage your colleagues on the campuses and engage your principals in conversations where you say, we want restorative practices. We don't want police on campuses. We want counselors, not cops, right? That is the work that is, that everyone has to do that everyone must do. It can't just be up to, you know, the Black activists to lead and and implement and and to do all of that work. So um, that's where we are. Um, Looking forward to hearing from from everybody else (laughs) as we dive into the conversation of, you know, what does it actually look like to do this racial and social justice work in education? Thank you so much, Tanya. That is that is the work, right? This is what we're here for. And so, and and you know, I hearing you talk, it made me want. I'm going to shift the questions because I think it relates to another question. That so now we're going to open it up for discussion to everyone. I have a couple questions posed um, for those of you in the audience. Please drop your questions in the chat. We will have some time at the end to answer those questions. Somebody from Haymarket will make sure that I get them. Um, and I see the conversation going on, so I know you guys are there, and you have to have questions for Nathaniel and for Cecily and for Tanya and for. Jesse, so please um, share those. So, you know, I think what you were just ending with is so important, right? That it's more, police-free schools is part of it, but it's not the end of it, right? And so fund counselors, not cops, is one of four national demands from Black Lives Matter at school, right? So I think it's really important, though, that we think about how the push for police-free schools connects to the other demands. And you mentioned that a little bit, Tanya, about restorative justice, right? We're not going to get rid of police if we still have punitive discipline in our schools, right? Right? And someone you shouted out your middle school and someone in the chat, I think with Bria said, it's the only school with the restorative justice program, right? That's a, that's important. You can't do this work without it. And uh, so I also want everyone to talk about the other demands, right? Mandating ethnic studies in black history, hiring more black teachers, right? How does this connect to this work to defund the police and to actually change the culture of schools for black children and thereby all children? Go ahead, Cecily. Um, well, I think it, it starts and ends with liberation. 
Um, I, I'm just going to just put that right in the space. Um, liberation and um, education, right? And you spoke, uh, Dr. Denisha, around like what don't students want? Well, first of all, we have to ask the students, like, are we honoring what students are bringing to the table to say? Like, I'm I'm just so blessed to be here in the space with you, Nathaniel. And I know that I have a whole lot of my students deserve students. Big shout out to students deserve in L.A. Holding it down with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, doing this work, trying to push our school board to do the right thing. They called for that ending of, you know, school police funding. And how do we actually b- believe and, and get police free schools? It has to be liberation. But liberation is also tied to education and anti-racist education. So if we are, you can only be racist or anti-racist, but then it's also tone at the top because when these heads of superintendents and folk and elected officials do not say that Black Lives Matter, period, then it it causes other folks to to get in the weeds and not address the real issues. We cannot have this dialogue of learning loss. We cannot go down that pathway because it goes and ties into a standardized notion of testing and a deficit model. And our students, Nathaniel is sitting here today telling us that he is working with other organizations and folks are listening to student voices. That is what is missing right now. We must listen to the youth and we must say that their lives matter, that their experiences matter and that we affirm they their standing in this community. And if the students are saying, stop criminalizing us, stop treating us as suspects because we are scholars, then we can get somewhere. We cannot go down a pathway of deficit and we cannot go down a pathway that has been given to us of more of the same because more of the same has not worked. And so if we are really serious, we must bring in arts and music and ethnic studies to actually liberate our students and our babies and our communities. Thank you. I mean, I'm so tempted to just end it right there because that was fire. (laughs) And I love that word liberation. It speaks to me. I've been I'm an as I mentioned, an early childhood scholar. I've been studying play. Play is liberation, play as freedom for teachers and for children. And I see it and I and I feel it. And I know that a better world is possible if we really think about, like you said, what do the babies need? What do they want? What what helps them thrive? Right. Thinking about Dr. Patina Love and, and her language around thriving, right? And it's so important. So thank you, Cecily. Um, I, I don't know who wants to follow that, but please jump on in. Jump on in. <laughs> if I if I can jump in for a minute, thank you so much, Cecily, for for grounding us in where we need to go for liberation. Because I think that kicking the police out of the schools is just the first step to helping make 
our kids safe because we also know that it's not just the physical abuse from police that our kids are facing, but there's also a curricular abuse that that is uh, harming our children as well. And that curricular abuse looks like black kids only learning about their history when we talk about the enslavement of African people and not learning about the incredible contributions that black people have made to science, to art, uh, to, to health, uh, to education and beyond, right? And we know that the power of ethnic studies is that it can dramatically increase the outcomes for our youth. You know, there was a study done uh, out of San Francisco uh, by uh, the San Francisco Public Schools by Stanford University that found that students who took the ethnic studies course there, their GPAs on average increased by 1.4 grade points, their attendance rose by 21%, uh, and their credits earned increased by 23. Um, You know, those are all great statistics of achievement, but even more important than any of those outcomes were that those students learned their own self-value and their own place in the world and their ability to collectively struggle for a different vision uh, of society. And that's the power of education and service of liberation to me. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm a I'm gonna ride on that for just a second. Um, You know, I think people hear removing SROs and they get scared, right? Because for some, the police is what creates a sense of safety for them, right? Whereas others, it's it's completely traumatizing. But the question is, it's we want to remove SROs, right? But then what does safety on campus looks lo- look like, right? What does having community on campus look like, right? And as Jesse mentioned with, you know, ethnic studies, right? Ethnic studies is not just a textbook, right? It's not just a chapter or a lesson that you teach. Ethnic studies is a way of living, really. It is a way of creating community, right? It is rooted in love, solidarity, and community community, right? It is a pedagogical approach to your your practice as an educator where you are looking at, you know, when a student, when, when, when there's harm in the community, what are the restorative justices? What are the restorative practices to, in, to uh, restore the harm that has happened, right? I'm not just sending you to the principal's office and writing you a referral. That is also a part of it, right? We Again, it's this, this shift in mentality and how we look at our students and how we see our students and do we see them as our own children or do we see them as those kids over there, right? And so ethnic studies, what it also does is it looks also takes a look at how you assess students, right? Um, our grading systems, right, that we so many people have come accustomed to, we know them, it's almost like this level of comfort. It's kind of like, this is how you play the game and not realizing how harmful and detrimental that has been to so many students, particularly BIPOC students. And so how do we go from grading and testing and over-testing to performative assessments and having multiple ways for students to show their growth, 
right? Through the arts and the, what they're able to create and their engagement in their own community, right? Um, it's all of those things that will bring students to life, right? To where those issues that you might be afraid of, right? The behavior issues, those behavior issues are stemming from somewhere. And I think if we can get to the root of that, right? You have students who are rejecting the oppression that you are trying to perpetuate in your classroom. So while we look at it as educators and tend to see it as them being disruptive, what that student really is doing, right, is they are resisting the oppression. And if we can see it in that light, right, then we can start to remove some things. If we can see it that that student may be coming from a place of trauma in society, then we can address the trauma and we can get to that place. And ethnic studies it is is. That is the foundation of ethnic studies, right? We are creating community through love and solidarity, and we are taking a holistic approach, and we are building, really taking a familiar approach to our students, right? That these are our children in our community, and we have a role and responsibility to nurture them, right? And to coach them and to build them up, not reprimand them and try to keep them in a straight line and push them out when they don't. Um, and so that's also needs to be part of the conversation. The reason why we want SROs removed is because we want to replace it with the, basically a loving community. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya. That that's definitely there. And, you know, hearing you talk again, you know, what, it, it, it so drives me crazy because we know if we study young children, we know what the young children need to do well in school. It's not secrets, right? We observe them. Parents know this, right? We know, but we somehow lose sight of it in, in this in this neoliberal white supremacist push for competition, scarcity, and all of these things. That so it is a it is a it's a culture shift. It's a whole paradigm shift when you do anti-racist and ethnic studies work, right? You're letting go of all of those constraints that we thought were normal. You know, I spent five years in grad school thinking that the achievement gap was normal and I had to f help fight against it instead of realizing that it was a racist lie, right? It was a racist narrative used to demean black and brown students um, on a construct designed to prove that they were inferior to begin with, right? And so it, it's really important that we that we assess all of those things and we break it down and we get back to what we know, what what we know about children and their development, right? Because I think, you know, this, I, this, I've been looking at trauma and I know there's people in the chat talking about this trauma work, but, you know, the adverse childhood experiences are really relational to the family. And what's missing is the adverse community experiences, right? Poverty is trauma. Lack of health care is trauma. Lack of jobs for the adults in your house is trauma, right? Not having a place to live is trauma. And challenging behaviors, yes, you know, I, I have a lot of teachers telling me, I, I look, I get what you're saying, but I'm not comfortable with no police in my school because I have high school students that are bigger than me and they fight. But understand that their fighting is a response to trauma. So why are we dealing with the response to trauma through police? Why aren't we dealing with a response to trauma through healthcare, through medical care, right? Yes, I agree, right? There, there are issues. I had to physically restrain a six-year-old. It wasn't my, my favorite thing to do, but I had to do it. But her, I didn't call the police and have her arrested. I got her to a place to calm down so we can talk about how to respond, right, to the trauma that she was experiencing in that moment that caused her to lash out. And so it, it, it is a change and it is a huge narrative. And so um, I want to keep the conversation going. And again, please share your, your questions in the chat. Nathan, 
Daniel and, and Cecily, you guys talked about this in your presentation. I hope you can help me give some concrete examples, right? But you talked about the need to center the voice of the youth and community members. And instead of just saying why, we know why, can you share a little bit about what you learned when you did that? What did you learn, Nathaniel, when you surveyed all those youth about getting the police out of your schools? And, and what did you hear from youth and community, um, Cecily, and even Jesse and Tanya? Because I know you're talking to the people, right? But I think we need to share that. What, what do we hear when we ask the people most directly affected what it is they want um, from their schools? Yeah, um, I think first of all, I was surprised. Like, like these kids knew what they were talking about. Like, it, it was it was phenomenal. Um, I think there was a pretty um, clear message. Of course, this was back in May, so um, we were we were in full distance learning. Um, at the time, the structures weren't as well set, um, and kids were struggling, and that was the reality at the time. And more than ever, kids felt disconnected. Um, they felt that their voices weren't being heard. And I can tell you, you know, working with student voice, um, you know, in the district and in multiple other areas, um, it can get tokenizing at times and you can feel like your voice isn't being heard. But the main message I heard was um, we aren't getting the support we need right now. Um, last year, I had five counselors. This year, I have three counselors. Uh, I'm going to college next year. I have three counselors for 1600 students. Um, that's just not. That's just not right. You just shouldn't be doing that. Um, So it it became a question of, do you want to invest in us or do you want to invest in the MPD? And if the choice isn't clear, then, you know, you got to you got to set the record straight and, you know, tell us what your values are, because um, if you really do value, um, you know, those one point one, not one point one million dollars going into the MPD, and you really don't value your students or our time or our interest um, or our sacrifices. So, yeah. I just want to continue to give it up for Nathaniel. I know you're all the way out there in, in Minneapolis, but, you know, like um, just shout out to you and all that you're bringing into this conversation. You're like, you're filling my cup. So I just want to put that out there. I think when, you know, we finally listen to youth, that's when, and and community, but more so I would say youth. When we listen to youth is when you actually are listening to hear with your mouth closed. And as we began to do that, we saw students just speaking up and speaking out. And as adults, it is our job to stand with youth and stand with community that are bringing this issue forward. Now, Tanya, Jesse, and myself, Denisha, we're educators. And I'm going to say something pretty controversial, but you've been in the building working and you know that there is someone harming kids, harming kids with their tone, with their approach. And what do you do? Are we speaking up and saying, wait a minute, why are you sending every black kid out of your classroom because they don't have a pencil or a piece of paper? Why are you denying them 
that right? And are we as educators speaking up against that? Because we have to. We cannot let it slide. I think uh, Tanya said it best, like something broke that day when we saw George Floyd, like we're in this incredible, unprecedented time of a pandemic and everyone was at home to watch what happened. And as Nathaniel recounted that piece, I got goosebumps because I was like, yeah, we watched that. And if you're black, you know that this happens day in and day out without cameras. And so we watched that. And how do we say we cannot go back? And so I challenge us in this face of crisis distance learning that we find ourselves in and wealthier white parents and liberals are saying, get back to school now. And we know that it's disproportionate and we have to have more police in schools and more standardized testing. And I say we have to have a healthy, healing, racially just opening of schools. And when I think of that, I think of ethnic studies. I think of what the students are saying they want. And all of the, the voices of the students and the communities that have never been heard before, this is time for you to say that what happened before cannot stand anymore. We have to say police free schools and mean it. We have to say care, not cops. We've got to say lower the class sizes. We've got to say lower the counseling ratios. Get us some mental health supports, psychiatric social workers and mental health supports that our babies are actually saying they need because this is the job. And if we actually want to come back to actual in building schools, it's got to look different than what we left because what we left before the pandemic was a white supremacist model that didn't work for kids that look like me. And when we talk about bringing more, more educators in that look like us, that we say that we affirm our babies' experiences, that we say that ethnic studies is a right, not a privilege, and that black history should be taught all year, not just when February 1 rolls around. That's what that means. And that all ties into Black Lives Matter, period. There's a period at the end, stop, full stop. <sighs> 
Getting us fired up, Cecily. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyone else? I mean, yeah, I think we're hearing that the youth want what we've been trying to give them and 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 they want, you know, a better way, right? A better way forward. And I and I love it. Tanya did say that they were resisting, right? They're resisting the oppression that our schools do to them, right? That our schooling society imposes on them. And so I think it's so important to hear and also to push back against the narratives, right? Because in our speaking to our communities, right? We had this when I was in DC. See, right? They say, well, community members want police. No, no, no. They want to be safe. They they want to people's not to be so poor that they rob you and make you unsafe is what they want. But all you're giving them is police. So if the option is be unsafe or take police, what are you going to think people are going to choose, right? That's just basic uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Which came from the Blackfoot people, actually, not from Maslow, right? So, you know, we're, we're talking about these, these basic things that people want, but if we get at what's causing the, the violence and the behavior and give people better lives and better opportunities, right, then we will see, we will see, and we've always seen that. We've seen Black people thrive and, and, and make a way out of, you know, out of the pain and the struggle. And if they can do that with all that we've been given, imagine what they could do if they had counselors and nurses, right? And engaging curriculums and teachers who look like them and teachers who care. And yeah, there's, there's just so much there. Um, so thank you. And, you know, I there was kind of a question, I'm not sure, you know, what do we do? How do we get, I mean, Jesse, you talked about this a little bit, but how do we get the school districts to put their money where their mouth is? Anybody got any tips, right? There's a lot of school district people, by the way. Uh, San Jose, I've seen them in the chat and all the other districts are here. So what do we do? How do we get them? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, some of you, I know you think about this and you, you think about different ways to do it, but any examples that you can share? Well, I'm, I, I mean, it's got to be a collective action, right? I think what, what you first said, Denisha, though, is important to underline that the safest communities in the United States are not the communities that have the most police. They're the communities that have the most resources, right? If we infuse our neighborhoods and our schools with the resources they need to thrive, we won't need police at all. And so I think we need to develop an abolitionist approach to organizing and to teaching like Dr. Bettina Love talks about in her book, We Wanna Do More Than Survive. That abolitionist approach and the abolitionist teaching network, I wanna highly recommend people get involved with um, to talk about how do we abolish the conditions uh, of oppression um, and the conditions of false scarcity, right? They say there's not enough money in the world's richest country to provide for, for our kids to keep them safe, right? Um, they want to endlessly measure inequality rather than address the problem. So they want to flood our schools with high stakes standardized testing and spend billions of dollars on the, on an industry to rank and sort our youth rather than uh, to give them the resources that they would need to thrive. So instead of high stakes testing, I think we need to invest in COVID testing uh, and support um, our kids being able to be healthy, right? And to do that, it takes a collective struggle. And that's why I'm so inspired by Cecily and, and the work that the LA Teachers Union has done is leading the country. The work that the Chicago Teachers Union is, has done is leading the country because it shows what's possible when we shed that narrow neoliberal model uh, uh, thinking of struggles as great individuals, right? 
uh, and waiting for a Messiah. And instead, uh, we we come together collectively and we, we, we struggle. And I think it takes the unions partnering with social movements. And when you, when that happens, when you have a social justice union model of educators listening to the needs of their community and working day in, day out, year after year in common struggle, then you can have real victories. And and I think, um, you know, the examples of the Chicago teacher strike and the L.A. teacher strike are how you actually win resources for your community. I mean, when you all went on strike in L.A. and demanded a million dollar fund to support undocumented immigrant families and with for their legal fees and then you won it i couldn't believe it right you when you went out on strike to demand a nurse in every school and then you won because you had the families uh they you know they had your back that was an inspiration for for all of us and it should be a model for how we organize and fight for ethnic studies and black studies in our schools how we fight collectively to drive the police out of our schools and the rest of the demands around black lives matter Absolutely. I, I think both of the, the unions, they, they teach us so much. You know, Chicago, when they were on strike, they were talking about, you know, um, time for, for pre-K teacher, for pre-K kids to get naps. Right. They know how that's important. Pre-K children need naps. They need play. They, and, and teachers are going on strike for that, for your babies to get the rest they need in these classrooms. Right. That is revolutionary. It's not all just about, yes, teachers need the money and they need the pay, but they need a, they, they need their students to have a good working environment and they fight for that. And, and, and that's important. And they and they really showed us. And then we saw the red wave. Right. We saw people who thought they couldn't strike because, you know, you're not allowed. Well, let them fire everybody. Right. And they tried it in West Virginia. We know that they tried it. And so uh, we continue to see that move growing and and that's really exciting as well too um so we've got a little bit of time left and we're going to wrap up i i'd love um to hear your thoughts about you know what can people do there's so many people listening right now what is something they can do everyone's talking about it and you know you go you listen to the webinars people are buying books yes get bettina loves abolitionist um teaching get our book get the uh the lalania and karen's book you can't see it because i have uh, my screen up right um the what we believe jesse's got it get that principle and activity book for the little ones right get all the readings get Goldie Muhammad's Cultivating Genius, you know, there's just so much out there that we can read, right? But what is something concrete that we can do, right? And, and how can they go about bringing this work? Because it's everywhere, it's every school, right, that needs to push for racial justice and, and police-free schools and to create that environment. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things is actually saying that racial justice is educational justice, one. Um, two, we need to, in every single school, in every single local, um, well, in the schools, we should have some type of racial justice committee. At the local level, we need to have a racial justice task force that brings in student voices, community voices, uh, rank and file members. Our group started with about 10 folks and we're about 75 people on our racial justice committee that are committed to doing this work of dis de uh, dismantling uh, the very foundations and, and procedures. But it's also creating the other affinity groups, right? 
So we have uh, Latinx folks for Black lives. We have white people for Black lives. We have Asian uh, Pacific Islander folks for Black lives. And then we have uh, a small group of Native Indigenous folks for Black lives. So I think those inf- uh, affinity groups are helpful and to create um, this push that it's not a you know, oh, we're just talking about black folks. It's like, we are going to talk about this issue that covers us all. It's like an umbrella that covers us all so we can push this work forward. And it is critical to bring in students. And uh, if you have a Black Lives Matter chapter in your area, bringing them in. I mean, I cannot say enough about Black Lives Matter Los Angeles that has been at the table with us, not only at the bargaining table, but out in the streets and us doing the same. We always are using the bargaining for the common good model, lifting up other issues from community members and students when we're lifting up our bargaining issues. Yeah, I want to, I had a chance to talk with one of my colleagues or, you know, she's a fellow educator, um, white woman, in a more conservative area. Uh, and she's listening, she knows who it is. But um, she shared that after, you know, when the insurrection happened, that she was watching and, and listening and reading online, like she was on Facebook. Um, and, you know, just seeing how people were responding. And she read in one of the comments or something that basically said, teachers, if you don't address this in your classroom tomorrow, you're part of the problem. So I want to pause right there, because first of all, everybody's in a different space in this journey for racial justice and their own understanding of like all of these terms, like what is BIPOC and you're saying intersectional, like I'm so confused. Um, So everybody, you have to start where you are. Right. And so what I want to highlight from this one um, story from this teacher is she was actively listening. Right. That she was put herself in a space. Now, it was on Facebook. So whether it's on Facebook, whether it's in a, you know, listening to a session like this or in your in your area um, that she put herself in a space where she can hear different viewpoints and she was actively listening. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is after that, when she read that, she immediately got on the phone with her team of teachers and said, we have to switch up our lesson for tomorrow. And then they went to work, right? Now they took went to work and, and, and took a critical lens at the media and how things were portrayed in the media, right? But it's like starting to take that critical lens and start to question and critique that anybody can do with any lesson that you have right now in your classroom, right? To say, what are we reading? Whose, whose perspective is missing, right? Why are we reading this perspective? Are we giving any more value to this perspective than another? Right. Those are things that you can start doing. So one, she put herself in unfamiliar spaces where she can hear different perspectives. She was actively listening and then she responded. Right. And I think that those are key things as educators. You know, it's funny because. We, we we're highly trained. We take all the PD on all the ped- pedagogy and methods and, you know, but then we go into the community and it's like we leave all those tools in the classroom. Right. When we're doing organizing, we have to we got to pull into our toolbox and we have to use those same methods. 
right? So tapping into the community and doing things like engaging our, our students oftentimes don't speak about these things. What I found in my experience is because they don't feel like they have the permission to. They don't feel like this is a space where they can. You know, there are times where I'm like, well, what do you want to do? And students will look at me like, I can do that. And I'm like, yes. Right. And so we as educators can give them permission and make a way and create a platform and a space for them to have these conversations and to have to, to speak out and to be heard and to be affirmed that their experiences are real. Right. And then we can also start to pull other folks in and engage, you know, our community the same way we engage our students in a classroom and and start to teach and and pose questions and get them to think critically um, and then move them to action and what they're going to create. Hopefully that's what we're doing in our classrooms. Those are the same things, the same tools that we have that are in our toolbox uh, if we're going to shift this, right, um, for us. We're educators. We teach. you got the credential. you got all the PD. Let's put it into practice outside of our classrooms, right? Like this, our community is our classroom. So we can lead in those spaces. Um, We just have to know that we can do that and actually start to do it. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that that step that just, you know, I, I made that call on my Facebook. I don't know if she saw my post, but I was like, if you don't talk about these things, you're part of the problem. A lot of people said, where do we begin? And I, it's just like that. Listen to people. Put yourself in the space to learn from other people. And, you know, anybody can have a conversation with your students. What did you hear yesterday? What happened? What did what did you see without giving, you know, a lot of stuff, but just putting in that space to talk? And, and it's so important. And I think people are afraid. They're afraid to trust that the students can have these conversations. And I think when the students see you trusting them, then they trust you. Right. And it, it grows and it gets and it gets stronger. And all of a sudden the kids are like, OK, I can trust you. I'm We can do this together. You know, and that's so important. So. So thank you, Tanya. Anyone else want to share what's something someone can do to keep this work going? OK, I guess I guess I'll chime in. Thanks. Um, like, I think there's two things that always come to mind when this conversation comes up around, you know, what can I do in my community? Like it happened in Minneapolis. Why can't it happen here? I think the problem is, is like, you shouldn't have to wait until you're Minneapolis. Like we waited way too long. Okay. And you know, you need to learn the lessons from our mistakes. Um, If you truly think that the MPD is just one bad apple, you're no different than the people who think that, the four cops that murdered George Floyd were four bad apples. And that's the reality. Um, number two, um, I, yeah, I, I've also talked to some people who are um, on the more moderate conservative side who say, um, you know, I think, you know, police in schools, I want to keep my kids safe. And, you know, safety is always going to be the number one priority. And once again, it's changing the conversation of what does it mean to feel I'm safe and secure and like do SROs actually work and like people really talk about that. Like why they don't like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it, but like we, we saw that one crazy, I'm not even going to say her name. I'm not going to say her name, but we saw that one crazy lady who she literally, it, it didn't make sense. She was saying the SRO at Parkland wasn't doing his job. So by having more SROs, like, it, I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, 
but she was actively saying we need an SRO, even though the SRO didn't work. It is the bigger, biggest contradiction I've ever seen. Um, so in all honesty, do SROs work? Like, show me the empirical data. There is none. It's a false sense of security that we've used for years so we can put targets on students back and then we can have this false reality of, oh, we're safe. Mm. You, I mean, I, I had to go to law school to get that knowledge, Nathaniel, right? I had to sit in criminal justice and criminal procedure to understand that cops, all they do is, is, is punishment. It's not about stopping crime. They don't show up when you're getting robbed. They don't show up when they come up after the fact, right? And so it doesn't stop. It doesn't make you safer, right? It was a realization and you've gotten this at your age and that's, that's just amazing, right? And we, and we, and youth know this. They know that the police aren't there to make them safe. They're there to, to pursue crime, right? And to, and to see people as criminals. And that's become such a big problem, right? Because our, our children are not criminals. But if you put someone whose job is that, then that's what you're going to get. It's this highly criminal and highly punitive system. Well, this has been an amazing time. I know it's early in uh, California for then Seattle for those of y'all. It's going on 9 p.m. here for me. And I just want to thank you all so much for this amazing conversation. Um, I want to thank Derek Sanderlin and shout out to Bria for reaching out to me and helping us get this panel started. I want to thank Nathaniel Janine, Cecily Meyer Cruz, Tanya Jaco, and of course, my co-editor, We've been on this. This has just been amazing. I still, I mean, I can't, everyone's like, how busy are you this week? I'm real busy, but it don't matter because this is like the fruition of this idea coming together and working with this on Jesse has just been amazing. And, you know, it's just, it's just a dream come true. So I just want to thank everyone and thank Haymarket Books. Thank you, Dana. Um, thank you, Sean and everybody behind the scenes who are putting this together. We have another event tomorrow. Really exciting. Um, Brian Jones is going to moderate and he's much better at it than I am. Um, but Jesse and I will be in conversation with Marche Doss and Opal Tometi. And we're just really, really excited for that conversation tomorrow. Um, and yes, Black Lives Matter is happening all across the country. Check out the NEA map for Ed Justice and you can see all the events happening across the country and just keep doing the work. Thank you all so much and good night. Thank you, Denisha. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.